Um, today's scripture comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As a good one is, so is a sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hey, everyone. Good morning and happy Easter, all of you. Good to see all of you on this glorious day. We also want to welcome those of you who may be visiting us at the invitation of a friend, coworker, or even sibling. If you're here today uh, investigating the Christian faith and your friend or your loved one brought you here because of that curiosity, welcome, welcome, welcome. We're so honored to have you with us today. And we hope and pray that our time together will not only be educational, but maybe even encouraging to the point where you pursue that knowledge of truth in this context here at NCF. Welcome again. Uh, Without further ado, would you mind bowing your heads with me and asking for the Lord to bless our time together? Father, we ask that you would now speak to us. Lord, as we have gathered here, some of us for the first time or maybe for the first time in a long time, We pray that you would speak to every single one of us in this room, regardless of our past, regardless of our present, and regardless of what we perceive is our future. We pray that you would now come and speak to us and that we would come away understanding of the glorious reality of this thing known as Easter. We pray that you will help us to not only profit from what we learn, but that it would have rippling effects on how we continue to live our lives on this earth, making the most of it, to where we would have no regrets, but instead have such hope of what is to come in light of what you are doing in our lives. Oh God, would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. There is nothing after death, and death itself is nothing. There is nothing after death, and death itself is nothing. Those are the words of an ancient Stoic philosopher by the name of Lucius Aeneas Seneca. Lucius 
Aeneas Seneca. And you're probably wondering, why in the world am I beginning my Easter sermon quoting a guy who's been long dead, who believes there is no afterlife, when the whole point of Easter is to have hope in the afterlife, specifically eternal life with God. Well, as weird as what I'm about to say sounds, nevertheless, it is true. And that is Seneca, though he's been dead for well over 2,000 years, the man is still with us. And what I mean by that is his view of death is still with us. One of my favorite podcasts to listen to periodically is the Joe Rogan Experience, which I believe is still number two on iTunes. Please don't judge me, okay? But I like listening to Joe Rogan sometimes on iTunes. And last year, he interviewed a very well-renowned atheist by the name of Michael Shermer. And at one point in the interview, the topic of the afterlife came up. And this is what the atheist Michael Shermer said. He said this, quote, If I ask you to imagine yourself dead... You can't do it because to imagine anything, you have to be alive. So it's not going to be like falling asleep and waking up the next morning because you have dreams or whatever. It's going to be more like general anesthesia where it's like 10, 9, 8, boom, boom, lights out, but you just never wake up. There is nothing after death. I find it interesting that the way that he ends that statement is exactly how Seneca began. There is nothing after death. Now, all of this begs the question of how in the world has Seneca view of death when he's been gone for a long time, where many generations have come and gone, how his view of death has still survived? Because if you think about it, most ideas, no matter how profound they are, most events, no matter how significant they are at a certain generation, are forgotten in the next one. I mean, how many of us in here even know what what won the best Oscar Best Picture for Oscars 50 years ago. How many of us in here are even aware of books that got all these accolades 100 years ago? None of us. We don't recall anything of significance of previous generations. And yet, when you hear this statement from an obscure philosopher, I'm sure most of us in here have never heard the name of, will recognize his words. How is his view of death, Seneca's view of death, so recognizable here today in our day and age? Well, we get a hint of the answer to that question in verse 11 of our passage. Let's skip down and read again what it says there. It says, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Now, just in case you're not aware... The person who wrote these words is an ancient king who lived even further back than Seneca, a man by the name of Solomon. You may have heard of him. He has the reputation of being known as the wisest person that ever lived. And one of the reasons why he garnered such a reputation for himself is because of what is said about him in verse 1, that he observed life carefully to the minute details of every measurable way of looking at the world. He viewed life and he noticed many things. And one particular thing that he noticed is that life is not predictable. Life is not predictable where what you expect to happen happens. Because sometimes the fastest runner does not win the race. Sometimes the mightiest warrior doesn't win the fight. Any UFC fans in here? You guys can testify to this, right? Sometimes the wisest person still ends up tragically like the fool. In other words, life is confusing, it's contradicting, and it's viciously cruel. In this life that we live in, there is no happily ever after. The good guys don't always win, and sometimes great things happen to very, very bad people. And with that experience of life as it is, it's understandable why people today don't put much hope, don't put much excitement in the idea of an afterlife, of life after death. 
Because think about it. If the only frame of reference that you have in possibly imagining what eternal life can be like, which is what we Christians claim all the time, is this life here and now, some of us honestly, in our most sobering moments, will probably say, you know what? No, thank you. I don't really think Easter scratches where I'm itching right now. But here in this passage today, King Solomon is going to help us to understand how that attitude towards death and life is not only unnecessary, but it's downright wrong, and how the message of Easter should be something that you want, but more importantly, it should be a message that you need to receive. And to help you understand this, three things that he's going to guide us in today's passage today. Number one, he's going to talk about the absurdity of life. The absurdity of life. And number two, he's going to talk about the fearlessness of death. And finally, he's going to end it with the hope of life restored. The absurdity of life, the fearlessness of death, and the hope of life restored. You know, one of my favorite, let's begin by going to my first point, uh, the absurdity of life. One of my favorite movies comes out of the 90s entitled City Slickers. Do you have the poster up there? Everyone see this movie? Uh, One of my favorite movies to watch and starring Billy Crystal right there. For those of you who've never seen this movie, let me give you a quick synopsis. It's centered around this man, a New Yorker, by the name of Mitch. Mitch. And at the beginning of the movie, it's his 39th birthday, and it was at that moment that he immediately begins to to go down to this crazy midlife crisis. In one hilarious scene in the movie, he's at his son's middle school um, presentation. I think it was like one of those bring your dad to school day kind of thing. And in this scene, he's beginning to talk about what he does for a living. And then without warning, his midlife crisis kicks in. And all of a sudden, he starts vomiting out all the, all the diatribes and all the despair that he has going on in his life right now. Listen to what he says about life. Quote, value this time in your life, kids, because this is a time in your life when you still have your choices. And it goes by so fast. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything, and you do. Your 20s are a blur. Your 30s, you raise your family, you make a little money, and you think to yourself, what happened to my 20s? Your 40s, you grow a little pot belly, you grow another chin. The music starts to get too loud, and one of your old girlfriends from high school becomes a grandmother. Your 50s, you have a minor surgery. You'll call it a procedure, but it's a surgery. Your 60s, you have a major surgery. The music is still loud, but it doesn't matter because you can't hear it anyway. 70s, you and the wife retire to Fort Lauderdale. You start eating dinner at 2 in the afternoon, lunch around 10, breakfast the night before, and you spend most of your time wandering around malls looking for the ultimate soft yogurt, muttering to yourself, how come the kids don't call? How come the kids don't call? By your 80s, you've had a major stroke, and you end up babbling to some Jamaican nurse who your wife can't stand, but who you call mama. Any questions? (laughs) Now, we all laugh at Mitch's pessimism because on the surface it just looks like first world problems someone who is just bemoaning about superficial things and yet if you carefully boil down to what his issue is you'll come to discover that he is merely scratching the surface of something much more dark much more sinister and despairing and if you read verse one again of our passage there Solomon goes into full depth analysis of what this something is that has bothered Mitch so much listen again to what he says there but all this I laid to heart examining it all how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God whether it is love or hate man does not know both are before him now okay what in the world is this guy saying because it sounds all profound and all but it's not very clear well, how about this? How about we try again in a more smoother, clearer translation? This is the NIV, which says this. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hand, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. That's better, right? Well, I guess it depends. 
If by better you mean you can now understand what he is saying, then yes, it is better. But if by better you're talking about how we feel in light of what we now understand, then no. I personally don't feel better, and I imagine you don't feel better. Because what is he saying here? What is Solomon saying? He's saying life is really messed up, and it doesn't make any sense at all. He is saying there are people in this world, people who are righteous, people who are good, people who are moral, who nevertheless have things coming in their life that they're either going to love or hate. In other words, there are good, decent, moral people walking on this earth who will go through things in life that they're going to really, really love, awesome moments, but then they're also going to go through moments and times that they're really going to hate, that is severely tragic and really hellish to go through. But then if you go down to verse 2, he expands the audience to include not only the good, righteous, decent people, but even immoral, unrighteous, irresponsible, experience this bitter sweetness of life that is so miserable to where one moment you're having a great time and you're loving it, and another moment you're hating life and you're just miserable because you're going through such miserable sorrow. For those of you who are familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, this should sound very familiar to you because Solomon actually said what he's saying here before in chapter 3. Let me read to you again where he first introduced this concept to us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where starting in verse 1, he says this, For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to turn away, a time to search and a time to quit searching, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be quiet and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate. A time to love and a time to hate. Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Too bad what it's describing is very, very ugly. Let me explain what he's saying here. According to the weather, we have four seasons in life. We have fall, winter, spring, and summer, right? Those four, where in one year they cycle through and the following year they cycle again. But according to Solomon, there are only two seasons of life. There are good seasons where babies are born, people are laughing, relationships are flourishing, but then there are bad seasons where babies die, people are weeping, and relationships are broken. But here's the thing that Solomon wants us to understand. Just like these four seasons are always in your life and therefore unavoidable, these two seasons of life are unavoidable as well. And because that is so, do you know what that means? It means just as it's foolish to always wish that the weather would be like the fall, so also is it foolish to always wish that your life would always just be good times. Because as sure as the bitter cold winds of winter are coming your way, Solomon says, so also are the cold, bitter sorrows of life. And there's nothing you and I can do about it. You can land the job of your dreams to where you're just filled and fulfilled with your vocation, and yet you still have to taste the bitterness of one day being pushed out forced retirement, competition with your rivals, politics that push you out of your game. Some of us will taste the joys of having a child come into our lives where we can raise this child, but yet we have to taste the bitterness of that child eventually leaving us simply by either growing up or worse, taken away through the context of separation or divorce or worse off, sadly having to bury that child instead of that child burying you. 
Sometimes we taste the joy and bliss of marrying the love of our life. And we're filled with such joy and thankfulness. And yet all of us have to taste the bitterness of sometimes being separated from that spouse, either because the relationship breaks down or her body breaks down and she's gone. With every good, sweet, tender moments of life, there are always the bitterest sorrows that make those good times so short-lived and so irrelevant at times. Of times that you hate has this cumulative effect on you that is just so miserable. You guys know that this time that we're in is a pretty miserable time, right? Because we're transitioning out of winter and we're going into spring, which means there are days like this past week where one day it's like 65 degrees, the next day it's 39, the next day it's 72, and the next day it's 41, right? And you're just so frustrated, like, is it going to be hot or is it going to be cold? And you know that cumulative effect of always going back and forth to hot and cold does to your body. What does it do? It breaks it down. You get sick every time you're in this unstable environment. I get sick. My kids get sick, which means we're sick for like 10 years because I have five kids, right? Like we cannot handle, our bodies cannot handle that kind of unstable physical environment. We break down. It's not good for us. And that same principle applies to your mind. When you go through these various back and forth seasons of good times and bad times to the point where you feel like you're going insane. In fact, that's what Solomon says happens to you in that cumulative effect of living in this world. Listen again to what he says in verse 3. He says, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. You know what he's saying? He's saying that the longer you live, And the more you experience this inevitable back and forth between good times and bad times, times you love, times you hate, it just has this overwhelming negative effect on you to where you feel like you're going crazy and all it does is stir in you evil because you're so frustrated. Because the longer you live, the more you realize that life is absurd. It doesn't make sense. It's chaotic. It's confusing. And in that state of mind, it could lead you to make some very, very bad, erroneous conclusions about life. And one particular erroneous conclusion that Solomon does not want us to fall into is the very topic of my next point. So let me go to my next point, the second point, the fearlessness of death. Let's pick it back up where it says in verse 4, Solomon saying these words, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion? What? What in the world are you saying, man? For a living dog is better than a dead lion. What in the world is he saying? Well, you can figure it out when you go to the statement right before this weird one. What does he say there? He who is joined with all the living has hope. If you have a pen or a highlighter, you might want to underline that word join because that's very important. Why? Think about it. Whenever you join something, whether it's a company you could work for, whether it's joining a campaign for a politician you want working for you, or whether it's a gym so that you can work on yourself, there is a common underlying conviction, assumption when we join things, which is what? It's worth it, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't join. Everything that you join in life, whether it's an organization, a person, an institution, you always do so because you believe it is worth joining. Now, what does Solomon say we need to join? We need to join what? The living the land of the living. Why is Solomon saying that? Why is he saying, guys, join the living? Join the land of the living? Give up? 
He's saying that because one of the most erroneous conclusions that you can come to as you go through the absurdity of life is to think, this life isn't worth it. Life isn't worth it. Now, when he says that, he's not saying it the way a suicidal, depressed man would say, life isn't worth it, and just kill himself right then and there. That's not the mindset that he is challenging. And the reason why I know this is because of this reference of the living dog, the living dog. Let me explain what I mean by that. Please don't get offended with what I'm about to say, but this is true. Unlike today, in the days of the Bible, dogs were seen as disgusting, pathetic creatures. Okay, I know we have some dog lovers in here. Like, It's true, right? Dogs were seen as pathetic, disgusting creatures. If people back in the Bible came into our life today and saw how we pamper our dogs, they'd be like, what the heck is wrong with you? Now, why do they have such a negative view of dogs? Because in the ancient world, dogs were perceived as being so desperate for life that they would do some really pathetic, disgusting things. Let me further elaborate by reading you a quote from the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. It says this, quote, Dogs are repeatedly depicted in terms of their disgusting and inadequate diet. Typically, they devour what is left over after humans are finished eating, and that is usually described as mere crumbs. One certainly does not give them quality fare. Consequently, dogs are never satisfied and are constantly on the lookout for nourishment. Since what they manage to scavenge is inadequate, they may consume what is repulsive or what is not fit for human consumption. Vomit, feces. A threatened psalmist mingles all these elements when he describes his enemies as those howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They roam about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. The metaphor applies appropriately to Israel's greedy leaders. They are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough, end quote. Okay, so with this background, we come to realize that when Solomon is referring to a living dog, he's using that to describe a person who is hungry for life, who is desperate for life, so much so that even doing despicable, pathetic things are fair game as far as this kind of person is concerned. A living dog, in other words, is someone who is terrified of death to where they're willing to do anything, stoop to any low level just to make sure they can avoid death at all costs. That is a living dog, according to Solomon. But then Solomon goes, tells us that the opposite of that dog is the lion. The lion. Now, in the days of the Bible, just as it is today, the lion is a figure that represents what? Courage. Fearlessness. Right? Someone who has such regalness and such dignity. A lion conveys this idea that they would never stoop to the level of a dog. To where they would just be so pathetic and so undignified, even in the face of death. A lion is someone who would face death to the point where they would never be so greedy for life that they're like, oh, please don't kill me, please don't kill me, I'll do whatever you want. That's not a lion. A lion would face even the most overwhelming odds and still face it without groveling in any pathetic, despicable way. This is why kings love being represented by lions and any other animal creature in the animal kingdom. So when Solomon is referring to a dead lion, it's simply referring to someone who's not afraid to die. Someone not afraid of death. But that doesn't mean that person is suicidal. It just means they're not like a living dog. Where they're so desperate and greedy for life that they're willing to be so undignified and so pathetic. These are people who are willing to face death and not be afraid of it. Okay? And part of the reason, one of the main reasons why they're so unafraid of death is because they've lived long enough to know of how hard life can be 
that for them, death is not something to be scared of, but instead, death is something to actually look forward to. Because even though death may mean the end of life, it also means the end of all that is bad with life, all that is miserable of life. Death becomes an escape from all the miseries, tragedies, and sorrows that make life so chaotic, so confusing, so cruel. Folks, we have a lot of lions living among us today. People who carry this attitude that because life is so hard, life is so difficult, that death does not seem to be this intimidating thing that they eventually have to face. Again, Joe Rogan, last year, interviewed famous director Kevin Smith. And in the interview, Kevin Smith shared about how his mom almost died on the operating table for surgery. And it turned out she actually did die. For a minute and a half, she was clinically dead. Thankfully, the doctors were able to bring her back to life. And so when she was able to get visitors, her son, Kevin Smith, went up to her and said, tell me, what was it like? He was probably thinking of an idea for his next movie. I don't know. But tell me, what was it like? You were dead for a minute and a half. What was it like on the other side? And he shared the conversation to Joe Rogan by saying this. I was like, what happened? What was it? And she didn't describe a white light or seeing people. She just said, I was floating. And I was like, floating up? And she said, no, floating on my back. And I was like, okay, you were on your back in the hospital. Do you think that's what it was? And she said, I don't know, but this is what I remember. Every iota of responsibility I ever felt in my life was gone. I felt free. Like I felt instantly lighter. And just as I was heading in a direction, that's when they pulled me back. So she'd been dead a minute and a half. So I was like, all right. You've been in the best of all possible worlds for 60 plus years, and now you've seen a glimpse of the other side, which is better. My mom said, the other side. And I was like, what? You were there for like a minute and change. Why? And she said, I was completely free. I didn't have to care for this one. I didn't have to make sure this is taken care of. I didn't have to feed the cat. It was bliss. And if that's what happens, then I look forward to that again. Here's an example of a real-life lion a person who perceives death not as something to be terrified of, but something to embrace and to look forward to. Death is an escape from all the sorrows, all the pains, all the miseries, all the bad times that we hate. But now, listen again to Solomon's words. A living dog is better than a dead lion. A living dog is better than a dead lion. Now you understand what he's saying, right? What is he saying? He's saying, don't be like the lion. Be like the, de- the, the living dog. Be greedy for life. Cling to life as much as you possibly can. Why? Because you should be afraid of death. That's the subtext. Solomon is saying, don't you dare think of death as this marvelous exit to all the pain and sorrows of life. No, 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 no. You need to avoid death of all, at all costs. Death is terrible. Death is miserable. Don't go towards it. Don't ever fall into this delusion of thinking that you could be fearless of death, that death is something you should not be afraid of. You should be terrified of death. Why is Solomon saying this? What is it about death that is so frightening? Well, to explain, I go to my final point, the hope of life restored. Read again with me verse 5 and 6 of our passage where it says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no reward, for their memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Here, Solomon explains why we should be terrified of death. Notice 
what he says about those who are dead. What does he say about their condition? In verse 6, he says, Their love, their hate, and their envy have perished. Perished. Now, when you first read this, it almost sounds like Solomon is saying the same thing that Seneca said and that atheist Michael Shermer said, that after you die, there's no more because he just said, the good times, the things that you love, the bad times, the things that you hate, they've all perished. So if there's no good times or bad times at death, then there must be nothing at all, right? So is Solomon simply repeating what Seneca and atheists today are saying? No, he's not. Because skip down to what he says in verse 10, in the second half. He says, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Solomon refers to a place called Sheol. And notice he says that this place is characterized as having no knowledge. And if you go back up to verse 5, he says that the dead know nothing. So what is Sheol? It's the place of the dead. It's the place where people go after they die. And indeed, Old Testament scholars tell us that the Bible's conception of the afterlife is this place known as Sheol. And let me tell you, it's not a paradise. It's not a happy place. Listen to what one Old Testament scholar by the name of Merrill Unger, how he puts it. He says, quote, Sheol is used to signify the grave. The darkness and gloom of the grave was such that the word denoting it came to be applied to the abiding place of the miserable. The miserable. Sheol, the place of the dead, according to Solomon, is a miserable place. Miserable. But of course, that begs the question, well, just how miserable is it? Is it as miserable as the miseries of this life? Is it as bad as some of the worst things that we have gone through? Hmm? Solomon says, no, it's worse. It's much, much worse. Because look again at what he says in verse 10. In Sheol, there's no work. There's no knowledge. There's no wisdom. There are no thoughts. Can you imagine how crazy life would be if there was none of those things right now? Just think about some of the technologies and some of the services that we rely on all the time. Clean water, electricity, transportation so we can get food and oil. All things that require work, knowledge, thoughts, and wisdom. Can you imagine how your life would be right now? If you had no running water, if you had no electricity, no transportative services whatsoever to get you food to the supermarket and so forth, your life may be miserable now. I'm not denying, but I'll tell you, it will be much, much worse. That's Sheol. That's what Solomon is saying. You think life is bad now. It's much worse at death. There's nothing there to where you could find any sense of hope or any sense of peace. That is what he is saying here. It's so much worse. Now, some of you are like, whoa, 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 wait. Back up. Maybe you're detailed-oriented like I am. And it's like, I just saw something in verse 5 that seems to refute what you're saying because you just said in verse 5, or Solomon just said, that there is no love and there's no hate in death. And if hate represents the seasons of sorrow and miseries and bitterness of life, and he says that it's no more, how can what you're saying be right? Because he just said that when you're death, there's no time of hate anymore. There's no seasons of pain and misery. That's a great question. The answer is found in the very next word that comes after hate in verse 5. What is it? Envy. Envy. You guys ever experienced envy? Of course you have. What does it mean to be envious? It means when you're so bitterly outraged and angry because somebody else has something or experiences something that you don't have, but you think you deserve more than they do. That's envy. And Solomon says, look, when you're in Sheol, you don't envy anybody 
because nobody in Sheol is experiencing anything that anyone else in Sheol would ever be envious of. It is really, really bad. So when he says that there's no hate in Sheol, he doesn't mean that there is no pain and sorrow. He's just saying there isn't the kind of pain and sorrow that we're going through right now, which tells us something about the pain and miseries that we're going through right now. You know what it is? As painful and as hard as it is right now, it ain't nothing compared to the pain and miseries that is there in death. That is what Solomon is saying, okay? He is saying that it is really, really bad. And if you think about it, life kind of hints at us that this is true, right? I don't know if any of you have ever have to gone through the tragic pain of watching someone you love slowly die in front of you. But if you have, you know that what I'm about to say is absolutely true. If someone you love is slowly dying, where each passing day is a day closer to death, you notice a pattern, don't you? Where each passing day, the level of suffering, the level of pain, the level of misery increases. The closer your loved one gets closer to death, the more pain and sorrow increases. It's kind of like going closer to a raging fire. The closer you get to the flames, the more pain, the more suffering you go through. Now, let me ask you, in that kind of scenario, is it rational to ever think, hey, this really hurts. It's really painful. Let me go ahead and just jump right into the flames itself because then at least I won't be hurting like I was as I was getting closer to the flames. Would that ever make rational sense? No, right? And Solomon is saying that's the same ridiculousness that is pervasive in the mindset that says, oh, I'm getting closer to death and my life is getting more miserable. The shadows of death are upon me. And I'm just so frustrated. I know. Let me just look forward to dying. Solomon says that's just as ridiculous as just jumping right into the flames because you're so miserable because you're so close to the flames. Do you get that? Getting to death is not a remedy from the pain of the shadows of death. It makes it so much worse worse. Solomon is saying is that when you think about the miseries of life, which is the result of death getting closer and closer to you, do not fall into the delusion of thinking that all you need to do is just look forward to when you just die. Because the assumption that you think it just ends actually is where it all begins even more. That's what Solomon is saying. Instead, you need to place your hope in the opposite direction of death. You need to go in the direction of life. But the question is, how can you go in the direction of life when life right now is so hard, it's so miserable, it's so painful? Well, let me answer that question by asking a question to you. What is the point of Easter? Why do we Christians celebrate Easter like this? To where we're all about getting dressed up and having a moment of of intentional focus and intentional presence. What is it about Easter that makes it so significant? Paul tells us in his own words in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20, he says this, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After the end will come 
when he will return the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Easter is the celebration where we celebrate Jesus' resurrection, him coming back from the dead. But we don't celebrate simply because he did something amazing, but because he did something amazing for us. Because as we just read, Paul tells us, when Jesus rose from again, rose again from the dead, he started a chain reaction for those who put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. That is, he started a reaction that's going to ultimately end to where when you die, that's not the end of you, it's just the beginning. You will have new life. You will have eternal life. In other words, God the Son came into the world as Jesus so he could do what no other person could do. He paid the full penalty of human sin, which is the reason why death exists in the first place, By living the most perfect righteous life, suffering an obscure, humiliating death that culminated with him on the cross. Why did Jesus do this? He did it for two reasons. Number one, so that you would know his attitude towards death. You know what Jesus' attitude toward death is? His attitude is he hates it at all costs. And he is terrified of death. That's why he came into the world. And he was willing to do anything, no matter how pathetic it looked, no matter how despicable it looked, no matter how shameless it looked, he did not want death. But not death to him, death to you. Here is Jesus, the true lion, the king of all kings, so dignified, so regal. But because death terrified him in terms of what it could do to you, he was perceived like a dog. People looked at him as so pathetic, so despicable, so shameful, right? So unclean. Just so that you would know the extent of what he would do so that you could have life. So that you could have life. Not so that he could have life at all costs, so that you could have life at his greatest cost. That is what the gospel teaches The second reason why Jesus did this is so that when you accept that truth, when you believe that in your heart, and when you understand that's how much God loves you, then would you be able to receive the hope of life again that manifests in the forms of forgiveness of sin for all your sins, transformation of a new life now, and the hope of eternal life. That is the life that gives you hope in the midst of the current pain and chaos and seasons of life that make it so hard for you right now. That is the Easter story. That is the gospel. That is the life Jesus is promising you. But the question is, do you believe it? Will you accept it? Will you own it? Will you embrace it as being true? Because that's how much your God has loved you. I'll tell you what. If you really believe that in your heart of hearts, and if you really live it out, that will change how you look at your life right now. You know how it'll change it? Read again verse 7 of our passage. It says this, Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil all at which you toil under the sun. This is the fruit of what happens when you believe the gospel. 
you can find joy and purpose and meaning right now to where you don't end up like a perpetual Debbie Downer, right? where you can actually enjoy your relationships instead of be like, oh, what's the point of falling in love? We're all going to die anyway. No. The hope of the resurrection gives you the ability to have hope now, even though death may come temporarily. That's not the final season. Spring is coming, and it will never go away. Spring is coming. Eternal life is coming. And it'll never be cold and bitter again. And when you understand that, that changes your outlook. You don't become like Mitch from City Slickers. You don't become a skeptic like Seneca. You become a person of hope and faith that is actually infectious and encourages the people around you, making people so much brighter. And I got to tell you now, we live in a time where we need some bright people around us. I hope it will begin here and now with the people in this room. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand this glorious message of Easter. Father, a message that gives us hope in life again. In spite of the fact that we are filled with seasons of sorrow, of cold bitterness, we ask, oh Jesus, that you would give us strength to endure and the ability to have perspective, especially when we find ourselves surrounded with so much to despair over. God, I pray for every person in this room, especially those investigating the Christian faith, that they would come away understanding that they have hope in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that they would respond to today's message by embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior today. Oh, God, would you hear this prayer on their behalf, and would you hear the prayers of the saints gathered in this room? For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.